Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes, he refreshes my soul. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we long that familiarity would not breed contempt in us tonight. We pray that you would help us to see and understand the wonderful, rich truths contained in these well-known words. And our Father, we pray that we would leave rejoicing. More than that, that we would leave trusting, delighting, knowing that there is nothing that we will face that we face alone, for our shepherd king is with us. Amen. This might just be the best-known passage of Scripture. And the problem for many of us will be that we simply know it too well. Or at least we think we do. We're so familiar with what we think is here that we end up seeing what we want to see. What we want God to say to us. What we want God to be rather than what he actually says. The Lord is my doctor. I'll never stay sick for long. He ensures I never get cancer or long-term depression. The Lord is my financial advisor. I will not go bankrupt or face hardship. He leads me to creature comforts, a house deposit, and nice foreign holidays. The Lord is my relationship counselor. I will not remain single or face loneliness. He leads me to my perfect partner and guarantees a love that lasts. The Lord is my spiritual assistant. I will find the Christian life straightforward and enjoyable at all times. He leads me serenely upwards, so it never feels like sacrifice or struggle. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to read these words like that. I know I have. The thing is, when we read the Bible like that, when we allow what we want it to say to drown out what it does say, actually we we come unstuck and we become disappointed and possibly angry with God as we find our, our expectations of life just don't measure up to our experience in life. And so we write God off as having made promises that he doesn't fulfill or just being too useless or unloving to give us what we thought he said he would. What I want to show you tonight is that what the psalm actually teaches is far deeper, far richer and far better than anything that we might long that it would teach us. There was actually a guy who, um, a few years ago, was uh, sat right here, uh, right in the early days of Christchurch Mayfair. He had been raised in the Middle East as a devout Muslim, and he knew the Muslim scriptures inside out and the Muslim idea of God. But when he was at university, just before he came to, to CCM in London, he hit a really, really hard patch in life, and he found he just wasn't There were no answers to to what he was going through. And he felt alone and down and didn't know where to turn. 
And a Christian friend of his said, hey, look, when I'm really down, I, I read Psalm 23. I find it really comforting. It's the only bit of the Bible they really knew, to be honest. And he started to read, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And just burst into tears. He'd never heard of a God like that before. A God who would love him. And he became a Christian. And the rich truths that he learned in that psalm also gave him the courage because for him to live for Christ might well mean losing everything in this world. But he knew that if God was his shepherd, it was all worth it. Although this is a psalm that starts in gentle meadows and babbling brooks, it is a psalm that equips you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death on the way to feast with the king. And it is a psalm that enables us to live without fear in a life and a world that is fearsome. Now before we get in, let me just say one other thing, which is uh, the reformer Martin Luther taught that the art of faith, when you come to the book of Psalms, the art of faith is to make each psalm my own through meditation and prayer. And so he said, look, what you need is more than just a sermon on the psalms that explains the meaning of them. That's what we're doing now. We'll work through carefully to understand what each phrase means. But that's only the first stage. Then it's over to you, to be perfectly honest. Or this is pointless exercise tonight. You need to own this psalm yourself by meditation and prayer. Now, meditation is not some weird thing. We do it all the time. It's just chewing something over in your mind. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. And all of us know how to worry. You're an expert in meditation, I guarantee it. You've been doing it for years. Just do it with the words of Scripture rather than the worries of tomorrow. So, when you go home, print out, screenshot, write out the words of this psalm and carry them around with you for the week. Go over them bit by bit, chewing them over again and again, working through the meaning, thinking out the implications. Work them down into your bones and then work them out into your prayers, praying these words back to God that he wants you to pray through the week. So that the truths of Psalm 23 become natural truths, instinctive truths for you to pray, your own words. So that when you walk through the valley, you walk through it praying this psalm and knowing the presence of the shepherd with you. And when you walk through it with friends, you can pray this with them. We're just going to have two points, to to be honest, tonight. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd and the Lord is my host. Lord is my shepherd and the Lord is my host. Verse one. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I won't do it, but I wonder how many of us could say, amen, I lack nothing. It doesn't mean, I don't think, that there is nothing that David ever wanted that he didn't have in life. It means that fundamentally David knows that he can trust God to look after him and provide all he needs. He knows that if he has God, he has the God who holds the whole universe in his hands. If he has God then there is nowhere else that he needs to go for anything that he might need in life. And it begins with this wonderful declaration, this I have nothing, begins with the declaration that the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am, the promise-keeping God of the Bible is my shepherd. 
Now, what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean that God is our shepherd? Now, to age myself, uh, so warning, those who are of similar age, don't start nodding, otherwise people around you will, will know how old you are. Uh, when I grew up, primetime television of a Sunday afternoon was one man and his dog, which was uh, uh, where basically sort of old, um, large, bewhiskered Yorkshiremen leaning on shepherd's crooks would whistle and their dog would run around a sheep, um, run around a, a field herding sheep against a clock into a sheep pen. This was primetime television, literally. An old man leaning on a stick, whistling, come by, ship, come by. And it's phenomenal. Look it up on YouTube. It's incredible, the control. And basically, he does nothing. The dogs are absolutely mind-bogglingly skillful. These dogs run the world, I tell you. They are. But anyway, that was... And so my idea of shepherd is kind of coloured by that. But whatever ideas of shepherds you've got from children's Bibles, from watching strange things on television, that's not what he's talking about. He is going to teach us what a shepherd is in this psalm. It is David who is the shepherd who is writing this psalm. And so the experience of shepherding is David's experience from the Bible. And we've got to allow the words of this psalm and the background of the Bible to inform what we understand rather than other ideas that we've picked up. And in particular, this psalm, it seems to me, stresses three particular activities. To say that the Lord is my shepherd, to say that he is your shepherd, is to say that the Lord provides for me. The Lord leads me. The Lord protects me. Or if you're desperate for three Ps, the Lord provides pioneers and protects. But the Lord provides for me. The Lord leads me and the Lord protects me. Firstly, he provides. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. The shepherd leads his sheep to pastures and waters and he refreshes our souls. Now it's easy to over-spiritualize these verses and we mustn't do that because they're not this is not just spiritual stuff he's talking about. This is the God who calls us to pray to him for daily bread. This is saying that God provides what we need for daily life. Everything that we need comes from God. Every good thing you have ever enjoyed, whatever it is, think of the best thing in your life, the best experience you've enjoyed. Everything that you've ever enjoyed and ever will enjoy comes from God. Families, friends, jobs, clothes, food, abilities, gifts, homes, possessions, the lot. All of it is a gift from the hand of God. But just as we shouldn't over-spiritualize these verses, we shouldn't view them as purely carnal either. Psalm 19.7 teaches that it is through the word of God that the spirit refreshes, restores our souls. He speaks to us words of comfort, words of encouragement. Words of love, words of discipline, words of forgiveness, words of promise. He speaks words of life to our weary souls. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now, one of the main reasons I think that I, and I suspect you, struggle to affirm what David states here is that we forget both who we are and where we are if we're Christians, if we're followers of Jesus. You see, who we are and where we are changes the meaning of this. We've got to remember we are pilgrim people and we are not home. We are pilgrim people and we are not home. That has to impact what we expect from a good God. 
See, the provisions to sustain us for a journey look very, very different from what a well-furnished home is like. We travel lighter than we live. Now, being occasionally uh, mildly forgetful, apparently, my wife sometimes has occasion to say to me, are you sure you've got everything? Of course I have. Furious scramble to check. And when last week we were out hiking in the mountains, the have you got everything led to a search of a small bag about this big. Yes, I have everything. When we moved house last, have you got everything? It's a very different sized bag. The bag you travel with and the possessions you live with look different. And you and I are traveling. You don't go traveling with a 48-inch flat-screen TV and a massive sofa. Those are things you have at home, not on the journey. And we're happy with all sorts of things while we're traveling to holiday that we would not be so happy putting up with when we're there for two weeks. So you go on a group holiday, and it's your main holiday of the year, and you've been saving up, and you're really excited. You've done no research because you're busy at work and you just trust the other people to book it for you. You turn up at the airport and they give you your boarding card and it says EasyJet on the top. Great. EasyJet flight, fantastic. You turn up at the destination to see EasyJet Villa. Mm, Not so exciting. I mean, who really cares for a three-hour flight? EasyJet, SqueezyJet, fine, don't care. For two weeks, I'm not sure that's quite the vibe I want for my summer holiday. There are things that it doesn't matter when you're traveling. But when you get there, you kind of want more to be able to say, this has been wonderful. Wonderful. It is ridiculous. We invest so much effort trying to make this temporary world our home. And sad that we think God's a miser because we're expecting expecting the five-star hotel and we complain that the... Well, the the departure lounge, the the inside of the plane doesn't quite look like we want it to. We've forgotten. We're just passing through. His provisions are provisions for the journey, not for a permanent stay. And the truth is, if you live long enough, you find his provisions are incredibly generous. Far more than he promises, actually. But he provides us with everything we need for the journey. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing for the journey. He provides. Secondly, he leads. The second part of verse 3. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Now, sheep are dumb animals, and they follow each other blindly and dumbly, if you ever watch them. And the Bible says you and I are most like sheep of all creatures. It's sheep. It's not particularly attractive, but then look at the way you dressed as a teenager. You blindly follow some pretty stupid paths. The internet memes people share without reading or understanding. We need leading, because when we're left to our own devices, we go in some pretty dumb directions. Now, guide in verse 3 might sound quite sort of gentle, you know, a little gentle guidance. But the whole biblical background to shepherding is of leadership, is of kingship, is of rule. It is a kingly metaphor. So a little later on in the Psalms, in Psalm 78, David is described in these words, Psalm 78, verse 70. God chose David his servant and took him from among the sheepfolds. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel. To be a shepherd is to be a king. 
The same psalm talks of God leading his people through the wilderness like a shepherd leads his sheep. Isaiah 40 verses 10 to 11 tell us that God is our shepherd. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The shepherd king is a mighty king who tenderly loves. Okay, well, so what does it mean to be his sheep? Well, obviously it means we're led by him, but what does that mean? Well, it seems that the Bible fleshes it out in one particularly concrete way. In John chapter 10, as Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says, he, the good shepherd opens the gate and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought them all out, he goes on ahead of, him, of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. The shepherd speaks and the sheep listen. The sheep trust and obey. In other words, the words of this book are not just take it or leave it. They are the voice of the king. They are words of authority and power that come to you and me, not to be weighed and, and debated so much as to be trusted and obeyed. And so a pretty useful question for us is, what does your attitude to God's word say about your attitude to Jesus Christ, your king? What does your attitude to God's word say about your attitude to Jesus Christ? It's one of the most acid tests. It's easy to love and obey the Jesus in theory, It's the Jesus in practice that we have to deal with. Is he the shepherd whose voice you love and obey? Or do the voices of culture or my desire have ultimate authority? Do we let them determine what we allow God to say, what we hear him to say? No, God is the shepherd king. His words come with authority and power. And that is actually wonderful when we think about it. His words are not weak words that can be ignored or remolded. They're mighty words, words that endure and can be trusted, words you can build your life on. The shepherd leads. And he leads for his name's sake. He leads us along right paths for his name's sake. That's better than doing it for our sake. For God will always uphold the honor of his name. And so if he promises he'll lead you for his name's sake along the right paths, Oh, well, then you can trust he'll do it because it's the ultimate reason of the universe for his name's sake. The shepherd leads. Finally, the shepherd protects. And this is a great reality check for us. Verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We assume that if we listen to God's voice and he guides us in right paths, verse 3, that we'll only ever know the proverbial green pastures and babbling quiet waters. But shockingly and uncomfortably righteous paths here leads through dark valleys. And before we write that off as a metaphor, remember Psalm 22 recounts the experience of one who followed God's leadings perfectly. And yet he walked through a darkness and a misery and a suffering that we cannot begin to imagine. 
Now, some of us here are still pretty young and have had wonderfully sheltered upbringings, and that is not a bad thing. I'm not criticizing that at all. But all of us eventually will have to walk through dark valleys. We can kid ourselves when we're very young that if we live the Christian life well enough, we'll avoid all sorts of the messes that sin causes and that life will will remain comfortable. And yes, we'll avoid an awful lot of problems if we don't if we don't follow the deceit and the corruption of sin. But the simple fact is we live in a fallen world and even those who walk the right paths will have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death at some point. This is a world where there is cancer and mugging and redundancy and bullying bosses and dictators with chemical weapons. And those are just the dangers out there Look in here and you find, well, other dangers that are no less deadly to your faith if you're a Christian. Deceit, selfishness, filth, hypocrisy, pride, judgmentalism. And behind it all, behind it all is the implacable, wicked and very powerful devil. And in a world like that, you need something more than gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You need a God who wields a rod and a staff. In 1 Samuel, we learn about David's life as a shepherd. And he says being a shepherd back then in Israel meant not just having to to protect sheep from wandering away in their own stupid way. It also meant dragging them back when they were about to be ripped apart by bears and lions. Terrifying mortal threats. The The rod here is a war club for battering a brutal wild animal that's going to kill the sheep. And how wonderful that our God is not afraid to wield a rod. And we are as vulnerable as lambs before lions in the face of some foes. None of us is a match for Satan or death. But we have a shepherd who has wielded the rod and the staff for us. John 10.11 tells ultimately how that happened. I am the good shepherd, Jesus declared, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He protects us by dying for us. Now, it doesn't sound very much like a mighty God wielding a war club, but as he dies, he disarms Satan and overcomes death. Sin and the devil and death were defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when this God says, I have a rod and a staff, oh, you can trust him. If you're into boxing, uh, Britain has a world champion, Anthony Joshua. He is a unit and a half. He's an absolute beast. And he's now undefeated in, what is it, 28 bouts. He's the world champion, unified three of the belts. There's one left, and he's going to get that probably by the end of the year. Now, if, uh, if you've got to walk through a dodgy area of London one night... And Anthony Joshua says, oh, it's all right, I'll walk with you. That's all right. Because he has already knocked out all of the biggest people there are on this planet who can throw a punch. And so you know you're going to be all right if he's with you. When you walk through this life with Jesus, you walk through the one with the one who has knocked out death, who has knocked out Satan, who has knocked out your sin. What on earth is there to be afraid of if he is with us? 
The one who burst out of the grave on Easter Sunday is the one who walks beside us and the one who carries a war club in case any would seek to destroy his precious people. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. But everything changes wonderfully in verse 5 to a different image. as the Lord is my host. Look with me. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We move from the shepherd and his sheep to the host and his guests. Now the point of enemies in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I think is that if God can provide food for you when enemies are attacking, he can provide it anywhere. Here is a God whose provision is extraordinary. I was uh, uh, reading a prayer letter a couple of years ago from um, a group in Gambia that we helped to, um, to support, the Gambia Gamfis, which is a they, they work with Christian students in Gambia, sharing the gospel over there. And they've been for their annual conference, and they've basically run out of money. And on the way back, they were praying to God. And as they were walking back, it was um, just after the rainy season, they came across a, a stretch of road um, that was by a bend in the river. The river had overflowed um, during the rainy season. And as the water had receded, it had left um, a, a, a sort of body of water in, in a ditch by the road that was a self-contained and it was full of fish that had nowhere to escape to and they'd just been praying and <laughs> in the middle of Africa in dry land God provided them with a whole heap of fish that's what God's like he can do whatever he wants he can, prov- he can set a table for us in the presence of enemies that's the point we may know seasons walking through dark valleys and we may know seasons when we run through dark valleys chased by enemies. But you will never know a time and you will never reach a place where you are beyond the reach of God's provision. Never. He can always provide. Uh, the mention of the cup in verse 5 is also hugely significant. Uh, there are two cups mentioned in the Bible that have come from God's hands. Two cups. The first cup is the cup of wrath. The second cup is the cup of blessing. You don't want to get them confused. (laughs) The cup of wrath, that's the cup of God's judgment that must be drunk by the wicked. It is an unbearable cup. In Isaiah, we read Isaiah 51 and verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. That's the cup Jesus drank on the cross. The cup that should be ours. The cup of just punishment for sin. But because Jesus took that cup on the cross. You and I get given the cup that Jesus deserves. The golden cup of blessing and abundance. So you know when we share the Lord's Supper... Um, here on a, a church on a Sunday or at the, um, at the prayer meeting. It is partly a solemn reminder of, uh, of the death of Jesus Christ. The, the bread, the reminder of his body, the, the, the wine, the, the reminder of his blood poured out for us. But it is not only a solemn reminder that looks back to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also a foretaste of something that is to come. That the next time we meet Jesus Christ in the flesh will be as he seats us at his banquet. The first thing Jesus will do in the new creation is to host the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. Do you know how much the average wedding costs in this country? 
It's an eye-watering £26,000. Apparently, Harry and Meghan's wedding is set to cost £34 million. How do you even begin to spend that much on a wedding? Because a few of you thinking, I don't think it's that hard. I, I, I don't want to know. I genuinely don't want to know afterwards. I don't want to hear a list of things you could spend the money on. I cannot even begin to get my mind around it. But it is nothing compared with what God will prepare. There is no expense spared by the God of the universe as he prepares the wedding feast of the Lord Jesus. The feast as he celebrates that the Lord has brought his church, his people, his bride safely home to be with him forever. We will eat gourmet food better than any three Michelin star restaurant and we will drink the finest vintage ever and we will party like we have never partied before. English people will dance at that wedding feast. Verse 6, verse 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, then we will feast. Now, goodness and love follow. Actually, this is a rubbish translation. It annoys me because the the word is so much stronger and better, actually. It's literally, they will pursue us. It's not that goodness and love are sort of lagging behind like teenagers on a family outing. They're pursuing us like sheepdogs ensuring that we don't get lost, ensuring that we, we don't wander off or, or just get exhausted. They're driving us home to our heavenly banquet. God's sheepdogs are goodness and love. And when we look back on our lives from the vantage of eternity, when we look back on the way that God has dealt with us and the different things that he's brought us through, you may not believe me right now, but on that day you will say, His goodness and his love pursued me every step of the way as we understand his ways with us. We will see that for each of us, our lives, if we trust the Lord Jesus, are a testimony of the goodness and the love of God pursuing us home. The destination, the destination that he's driving us towards is the house of the Lord. That is the place where we will dwell for all eternity. And the key thing uh, about this is, uh, is not so much a, a place as a person, actually. You see, the, the house of the Lord in the Old Testament was the temple. It was the building where God symbolically dwelt with his people to bless them. And that's where we will live. In the place where God is and where God is enjoyed. Not just in his kingdom, We will live in his kingdom, but we won't just be in his kingdom. It's more than that. We'll dwell in his house. Not just subjects of the great king, but hosts, guests of the host, the divine host. Now, the last word is is incredible. It gets its own line, not just in the English, but in the Hebrew. That one word gets its own line. Forever. The writer wants us to feel the force of it. David wants us to hear that word ring out forever. See, even the most cherished guests outstay their welcome if they stay around for too long. I had friends who, uh, who had people staying with them. Um, and uh, they said it was, it was lovely, but they, you know, they, these friends had slightly different. They were slightly more um, uh, traditional tastes, so they had to kind of keep uh, the cupboard with uh, certain drinks away and uh, the TV, you know, it's, uh, 
I'll try and hang a picture over that so they don't think we have a huge flat screen TV. They might think it's inappropriate. And it was lovely. Uh, and then at the end of the stay, after a, a week or two, um, these uh, other friends who were meant to be then going on on a holiday said, we so enjoyed our time with you that we cancelled our other plans and we thought we'd just stay another couple of weeks. How wonderful. Mm. But God invites you to stay with him forever. God does more than just invite you in for a while. In fact, my point is entirely wrong to say it's, uh, that the Lord is our host. We are not going to be guests of a host in heaven. We're going to be adopted children of a father. Our place will be permanent. Our welcome will be forever. So what do you do with this psalm? You trust God. You trust that the Lord is my shepherd. You rejoice that the Bible fills that concept of God, which so many people around the world have different understandings of. The Bible fills it with this beautiful, rich, significant content and meaning. The God who is a shepherd, the shepherd who is revealed in Jesus Christ, the one who provides, the one who leads, the one who protects, and the one who invites us to his eternal banquet. That's who he is. But he's more than just the shepherd. The Lord of Psalm 23 wants you to be able to say, you are my shepherd. Christianity is not just the acceptance that uh, there was this guy, Jesus, he lived and he taught and then he died and he rose again. It is those facts, but it is not just them. It is that he lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. And through his word, the Bible, he speaks to me. The Lord is my shepherd. He took my sins. He guarantees my future. And he accompanies me all the way there. To be a Christian is is to look to see Jesus as the one who, well, the one who took Psalm 23 at face value and trusted God, the Lord, the shepherd. And walked all the way through the valley of the shadow of death and came out the other side to rejoicing and feasting. To be a Christian is to look to Jesus and learn from his life that we can trust these words. But it's also to look to Jesus as the shepherd, God in human flesh, come to shepherd his people. And to know that you and I have an assurance as we walk through this world. It's not just that as as we face difficult circumstances, as we face uh, dark, dark valleys, that we know that uh, there is this guy called Jesus and he trusted that this psalm was true. And so he trusted God in in his dark valley and God brought him through. So we know God will bring us through. It's much better than that. We trust that Jesus is not just the one who trusted God the shepherd, but Jesus is the shepherd. And the one who has already walked through the valley of the shadow of death, as the old words put it, is now with us by his spirit and he walks with you and me as we walk through our dark valleys. And on the day, that terrible day, when each of us will walk through the valley of not just the shadow of death, but death itself, even there he can walk with us. For he alone knows the way out the other side. You know how it is when you're a little kid. If, uh, if you've been blessed enough to have a loving father, then you'll know as a, a kid, sometimes life can be quite frightening. And in those frightening times, I remember once hiking in Wales in bad weather and being terrified. And there was nothing I wanted more than dad just to hold my hand. 
And so often as adults, what we want God to do is to give us a plan, to tell us what's going to happen in life. Just tell me the plan, tell me what's going to happen, and then I'll know it's all all right. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't give us a plan. He gives us a person who takes us by the hand and says, trust me, I am your shepherd and I will lead you home. Trust him. Trust him. Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ we have a shepherd. We have one who has defeated Satan and sin and death. We have one who walks with us and protects us all the way home. We have one who provides richly for us for the journey. And we have one who cannot wait for us to join him at the great feast at the beginning of eternity. Help us, we pray, as we journey to trust and to rejoice in our shepherd king. Amen.